Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Kiyoshi Masui, who is Assistant Professor of Physics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He works to understand fundamental physics and the evolution of the universe through observations of, of the large-scale structure, the distribution of matter on scales much larger than galaxies. Welcome, Kiyoshi. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, um, uh, I have a few papers here um, by the CHIME FRB collaboration, uh, and we'll talk about CHIME a little bit. Um, but the first one, observations of fast radio bursts at frequencies down to 400 megahertz. Uh, the paper uh, talks about fast radio bursts are highly dispersed millisecond duration radio flashes, probably arriving from, uh, from uh, far outside the Milky Way, uh, our own galaxy, and this phenomenon was uh, discovered at radio frequencies near 1.4 gigahertz, and so far has been observed in uh, one case as high as 8 gigahertz, uh, but not at below 700 megahertz in spite of substantial surges at low frequencies. So before we get into the details of this, Kiyoshi, uh, fast radio bursts, we have um, radiation uh, at, at the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum all around the universe. Um, what makes these bursts special? What are the characteristics that um, that make them fast radio uh, Yeah, so, uh, you know, fast radio bursts, or we just say FRBs uh, yeah. mostly. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're exactly what Ezra described. So the radio bursts and the fast part just means that they are very short duration, right? Uh, so uh, typically milliseconds long. So it's kind of like a camera flash really, except for, uh, except for uh, in, the, in, the, in the radio part of the, the, the M spectrum. Okay. Uh, and the thing that makes that kind of special uh, is that, um, uh, you know, a, a long-standing, you know, a, a classical uh, argument in astronomy is that you can't have large objects making fast signals. Mm. Okay, uh, and the, the reason for that is um, is geometric, right? So, uh, for instance, our sun. Uh, what is the shortest signal our, our shortest shortest you know uh, burst uh, our sun could con conceivably make? And the answer uh, to that is um, is that it would, uh, the sun can't make a burst that's that's any object the size of the sun can't make any signal that's shorter than, say, uh, 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 several, you know, several seconds long. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is it's, be it's just because it's geometrically large and, and the, the time, you know, the, 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 the sun is several light seconds across. So that if, if, if the sun made, you know, a, um, uh, uh, if it made uh, a, uh, uh, if it tried to make a very short burst, it would still look to be like a long burst to us, you know, seconds long, just yeah. because, you know, it takes time for, for the light to reach us from one side of the sun to the other. Right. And that, that geometrically smears out uh, these yeah. flashes. And so the thing that makes these specials are milliseconds long means they're coming from objects. that are only like 
uh, tens or maybe hundreds of kilometers across, which is, uh, from an astrophysical point of view, just very, very tiny. Right, yeah. And so, so two characteristics, it sounds to me, Kiyoshi. One is the frequency, and the other is the duration. Um, and the so duration, as you say, is going to be very, very short, millisecond duration, like, like you said, um, like a flash of a camera. And the other is the, the frequency uh, at which uh, it arrives. And there is a whole spectrum of frequencies there, right? And, and so um, this particular paper is talking about um, FRBs at uh, sort of lower frequency in the range of 400 to 700 megahertz. Yeah, that's right. So that this had never been observed before. Um, so we, we, we built this instrument, uh, CHIME, it's a radio telescope. Uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's built for to observe a certain frequency range, um, uh, which is from 400 megahertz to 800 megahertz, and, uh, and and that's just like any any telescope, right? You have to build it for a specific part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and that that's that's the choice we made for for this particular telescope. And it wasn't clear that these fast radio bursts occurred at these low frequencies. Uh, mm. They that one of the most common frequencies to observe at in radio astronomy is uh, is uh, uh, at one to two gigahertz. Uh, yeah. The reason is is that there are protected bands there. You know there there are there are places uh, where uh, you know cell phone carriers and stuff which just aren't allowed to transmit at those frequencies because they're protected for radio astronomy and that that uh, eliminates a lot of the interference. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, and so that's the most popular place to do radio astronomy, and that's where all these FRBs had been observed before. Uh, and but we 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 took a risk and built this telescope that observes at different frequencies uh, for uh, uh, for because of one of the science goals of Chime, not not the fast radio burst one, but another one. Uh, 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 required those frequencies, and we, it wasn't clear we were going to see fast radio bursts there. So that that's that's. Uh, so the, this first paper was, our, you know, the first fast radio burst that this instrument had ever seen. To a certain extent, it was just a big relief that we built this big telescope and, and were able to see things um, yeah. that that wasn't wasn't guaranteed uh, uh, beforehand. So so, um, so the, the, the FRBs themselves are sort of a recent phenomenon, right? So when, when did we first observe an FRB? So the, the first FRB was discovered in 2006, 2000, it's 2007, 2008, uh, depending on exactly how you count it, count when it yeah. was discovered or when the paper came out, whatever. Um, uh, but that was actually in data that was collected in, I think, 2001. So that the, the data was, you know, was collected at the Parkes Telescope in Australia. Uh, and it sat on disk, uh, uh, you know, it was used for other things, but no one had looked for these very short radio flashes in that data. Uh, yeah. and, and then someone, you know, Duncan Lorimer uh, bravely did a search, a very speculative search. He didn't think he was going to find anything. I just said, you know, what if we look for flashes in this data? Uh, and um, and uh, there were there was a flash in that data. And that was uh, this sort of um, this a uh, very iconic uh, result in radio astronomy that was the first fast radio burst. And then for, you know, five years, uh, yeah. there was a lot of speculation in the field of whether this was, um, whether that was a real signal or if it was just some glitch in the telescope. Mm -hmm. No, no one was absolutely sure that this was, this was uh, a real, this was a real thing. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, I think 2013 when when we went from one of these known flashes to a handful of these known flashes, and you know another another survey using the same telescope discovered uh, four of them. Uh, that that it was pretty that people started to become convinced that this was this was a real astrophysical phenomenon. Yeah, so uh, it is a little bit intuitive, as you mentioned. Um, and so we found it sort of accidentally in 2007, 2008 timeframe. Since then, we had, I, I, I believe we had 50 or so uh, FRBs observed. And uh, the, the, the counterintuitive part of this is it's a duration, right? Uh, it's a flash. And as you say, um, large objects cannot, cannot make things that that shorter duration. So this has to be something 
that is very dense and very powerful, like a neutron star or something like that? Is that the idea right now? That, that's exactly the idea. So, um, and, and we'll narrow down on that a little bit and, and, and some of the other papers that, that uh, we might get to talk about, right? But, uh, yeah. but, you know, since day one, people thought, well, neutron stars, this has to be a neutron star because, you know, you need energy to make this very powerful flash, right? So we see these things coming from, uh, you know, halfway across the universe, very, very far away. And so since we can see them from being coming from places that are so far away, they have to be uh, very powerful intrinsically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they uh, but they're coming from very tiny objects, you know, 10 kilometers across or something. And there's really only one astrophysical candidate that that works. And that's that's a neutron star. No one knows how the neutron stars are doing this. Mm-hmm. But uh, but people are pretty sure that neutron stars have to be doing this because you need something you know, you need something that has the energy and is this and, and is physically small in order to do this. Yeah, um, you know, just like quantum mechanics is is counterintuitive. With, you know, science are very small. Um, this is macro objects, but these things are really difficult to understand itself. Uh, many of these are these things are spinning very rapidly, right? Yeah, so what a neutron star is, is it's a whole star that uh, has the same density as the an atomic nucleus, right? So in the, in the matter that you're used to, in the sun, in you and me, you know, we're all made up of atoms, yeah. right? And, and the, the characteristic of an atom is that um, all the mass is in the nucleus. Yeah. And all of the, um, uh, but all of the space is in the electron cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's... That's what limits how dense uh, normal atomic matter can be. And a neutron star is a star that, uh, that uh, is so heavy, the gravity is so strong that it pulled all that, those atoms together. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that you have the electrons uh, capture on the protons to make neutrons, okay? And so you get rid of all the electrons yeah. and all the protons. Uh, and then suddenly you have no electron cloud anymore. And therefore, then the matter doesn't take up any space, right? It has the same, uh, so it's the whole thing is the same density as an atomic nucleus, uh, which, which is much denser than, 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 than normal atomic matter because, you know, you know, all the space is taken up by that electron cloud. Yeah. And so, and so that, that's what a neutron star is. And then the, there, there are many classes of neutron stars. They typically are, uh, are spinning very rapidly. Um, uh, you know, a slow neutron star uh, does a revolution maybe once every few seconds, uh, and a very fast one uh, will do a revolution at once every few milliseconds. Uh, and um, and uh, and these are uh, so the, the these spinning ones that are spinning very fast are called pulsars. Uh, it's just a, a type of of neutron star. Um, there's other types of neutron stars that we'll talk about a little bit later, hopefully, called magnetars. Yeah. Uh, these are neutron stars with very strong magnetic fields. Uh, there, there, you know, there's a, there's a whole zoo of neutron stars uh, that have different characteristics, but they're all fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, the, this kind of the same thing, which is, uh, you know, a whole star that has the density of an atomic nucleus. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, so very dense, but not dense enough to become a black hole. Right. That's right. They're typically very borderline, though. Yeah. Uh, if you. If, if they uh, if they became even just you know twenty percent for some neutron stars fifty percent denser uh, or uh, then they would become a black hole. Uh, so there's the, these neutron stars. There's thought to be some mass maximum mass the neutron star can have something like two solar masses before um, before it can't uh, before it's it's just too big to even be a neutron star. It has to become even more denser. Uh, more dense uh, and thus become a black hole. Yeah, and the electrons are protons. Electrons and protons are gone. So these are these are they, they don't have a charge. They do not have a charge. Actually, we do think that neutron stars have uh, protons and electrons in their crust. Mm. Uh, so they uh, so the the most of it, uh, uh, you know, the, the structure is not. Not that much like the Earth, but not unlike the Earth either, right? It has a, sort of this hard crust that's made up of um, that's that has you know like a crystalline lattice of protons, mm-hmm. kind of like a in a metal, uh, and that um, uh, and so there's some protons uh, there, and that t- typically makes a very a very rigid crust 
that can you know deform and crack and have 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 star quakes and stuff. Wow. Um, but those are um, uh, but but the bulk of it is kind of like our mantle for the Earth, which is uh, which is just pure neutrons, uh, and is much softer and uh, and, and and more fluid like. And they're, uh, as you mentioned, spinning very rapidly. Some of them um, has a frequency of uh, a, a few milliseconds. Uh, does that mean that we are talking about objects that is hundreds of kilometers in uh, in diameter, uh, spinning at uh, a few milliseconds uh, frequency? So does it mean that the, the surface velocity that we would observe on an object like this is a fraction of a measurable fraction of uh, uh, speed of light. Yeah, so actually, neutron stars are typically only ten kilometers across. Ten. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, yes, it, it definitely is an appreciable fraction of the speed of light. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's in the you know, uh, percent to ten percent the speed of light, the surface velocity. So that, yes, very, very, um, uh, very, very rapidly spinning for those these those very. Uh, uh, for those those very fast ones. Yeah, and and the demographics of this uh, Kiyoshi. So uh, most of them we just observed once, right? They're not repeating, and very few are repeating. Yeah. So for these fast radio bursts, um, the vast majority of fast radio bursts uh, are what are called are, are what we've been dubbing one-off events, right? It just means that we've never seen more than one burst coming from that place in the sky. Uh, before. Yeah. Uh, now there was this breakthrough in 2017, before Chime turned on, where we just where uh, a team. Um, uh, I wasn't involved in the study, but uh, a team, uh, including some of my collaborators, uh, uh, found a burst that um, that was repeating. They saw multiple bursts coming from the same place in the sky, mm -hmm. and that that was a that was a big deal because before that. We thought that fast radio bursts could be caused by cataclysmic events, right? Yeah. You know, let's say the merger of two neutron stars or something hitting a neutron star that would destroy the the star in the process. We thought that we thought you needed that much energy in order to in order to do it, right. in order to make these fast radio bursts. But once we observed these repeating fast radio bursts, that could no longer uh, be the case. You needed, you know, we had to produce that burst, but then the source had to survive to make another burst. Uh, you know, uh, uh, hours or days, or in some cases, just a few seconds later. Mm. And that was the only known uh, 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 specimen of a repeating fast radio burst. So we, you know, before Chime turned on, there had been 50 fast radio bursts observed and one source that had, uh, that was repeating and we'd seen dozens and dozens of bursts from that one repeating source. Uh, so that brings uh, me to this other paper that, yeah that we were going to talk about, which is the second source of the, fast, of the repeating fast radio burst. So when, as soon as Chime turned on, basically in the first two months, we observed uh, one, uh, uh, you know, 13 fast radio bursts compared to the 50 or so that had been observed before that. Yeah. Um, uh, and we saw those in just, in just two months, but then we also saw uh, 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 a second example of a fast radio burst source that, that emitted uh, repeat bursts. And actually, since then, since this uh, this this second specimen was discovered, we've uh, uh, we've published uh, eighteen more sources that we, we we've seen to repeat. Mm. And so, uh, so the initial conjecture was it is some sort of a cataclysmic event; the source gets destroyed. Um, but now we are we are seeing more and more repeating ones. So, uh, are they produced by two different? Phenomena, or but what is that? What's the current hypothesis? Well, that's 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 the million dollar question. Um, the uh, if you poll uh, the uh, scientists working in this field, yeah. in fact, someone did poll the scientists working in this field, just say, you know, gut feeling are repeating, <laughs> uh, are repeating FRBs the same phenomena as non repeating FRBs? Uh, they were basically split down the middle. Mm. We have we have no idea. Um, I uh, there are some, you know, some people will just say, oh, the ones we haven't seen to repeat, those ones are, you know, just, we just haven't looked at them long enough. If you look at them long enough, they will eventually repeat. Yeah. Uh, and then other people will say, say, well, actually, you know, not only these non-repeaters and these repeaters, not only are they different in the fact that they repeat and don't repeat, but there's also some morphological differences, some phenomenological differences in what the bursts look like that make us think like they might be completely separate phenomena. Yeah. And, um, and, and no one really knows at this point. Uh, right. 
to be honest. Yeah. And so there, there's a lot to be learned. So, so you are involved in um, this, uh, this instrument, uh, Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Equipment, or CHIME. Uh, it, it is in Canada. Where exactly is it? It's in uh, Penticton, which is uh, in the interior of BC. It's about uh, uh, a few hours drive from Vancouver, where I used to, where I, where uh, I, I was for my post. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so near Vancouver. So this is a sort of a, a a very different type of instrument, right? But so, the, what's the original goal of this instrument? Is to look for FRB, or they just sort of stumbled into it? Well, the, yeah, the original goal was actually to do something completely different. So the, the, the name of the experiment has hydrogen intensity mapping yeah. in it. Hydrogen intensity mapping is a, 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 an observational technique um, where you, uh, for, for mapping the large scale structure of the universe, mapping, you know, where it are, where's all the stuff in the universe on very, very large scales. Yeah. Uh, things like galaxy clusters and galaxy filaments and voids and stuff like that. Um, it was... But it was designed to be this very wide field telescope. So by, you know, the, the metric that, you know, it's claim to fame is it is the telescope that has uh, the highest mapping speed of any radio telescope in the world. So that, that just means it can observe uh, more of the sky at higher sensitivity, that, that, that product of both sensitivity and of sky area, yeah. it's, it, it, it is where it really excels. Mm -hmm. And then um, while Chime was being constructed, uh, 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 this fast radio burst field started to take off, and um, and uh, uh, some of my collaborators uh, uh, realized that uh, Chime was the perfect telescope to do this, uh, uh, to look for fast radio bursts. All we had to do was add another um, another digital backend, another uh, basically cluster of computers mm -hmm. to search the data that was produced by Chime for. Um, for fast radio bursts, and and so they we they wrote a proposal, and they had they sought out funding, and they they were funded, uh, and then uh, undertook this this effort to 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 create this new backend search engine. Uh, if you you know uh, you can't quite call it a camera, but uh, but it's you know it's an instrument that that just looks at the data that um, that Chime Chime produces, and uh, and and searches for it, and and that turned on about you know. Uh, 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 and was commissioned just shortly after the Chime telescope itself was commissioned, and 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 you really started to make these these amazing discoveries about uh, fast radio bursts. Yeah, and it is really uh, a data um, analysis uh, problem, right? So I would imagine uh, because it's because of the very short duration of these things. Um, yeah, obviously, Chime is collecting a lot of data. So to go back into this large amounts of data and, and perhaps use some machine learning type techniques to to detect them, I would think, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, Chime really is, it's a software telescope, yeah. uh, we like to say. So um, the thing that the reason it's able to have a higher mapping speed than any other telescope is uh, the way the optics work. So we don't, we, we do a lot less focusing of the light than a normal telescope. Our mirrors don't work the same way as other mirrors. They don't focus the light as much as you would otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, what we do is we, um, we collect light, uh, uh, radio light, uh, 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 digitize it, and we focus it in software. And that allows us to look in many, di many different directions at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so that's the first place where, that, where this you know, digital aspect of Chime comes into place, just the, the way it sees the sky, it's able to see more sky at higher sensitivity because it focuses the light digitally. Yeah. Uh, and then once you have these, you know, images of the sky that are coming in, you know, ev uh, on uh, uh, every millisecond, um, then searching those images for these flashes is actually very computationally uh, expensive. And we have a, a cluster of computers that includes um, 128 computers, each with, uh, you know, uh, 20 uh, CPU, uh, uh, 20 core CPU yeah. uh, that's, that's, that process this data. Uh, and it, and it, it uses these very clever algorithms to, to look for these flashes. Uh, we actually, we do make use of machine learning, um, but not actually in that first stage. We think we know with how to search the data hmm. initially uh, for for these flashes without using machine learning, we think we understand how, how to do that yeah. uh, sort of 
uh, using more just clever algorithms, but not not machine learning algorithms. The place where machine learning really comes in handy uh, is uh, to reject false candidates. Yeah. So the, unfortunately, you know, interference is a huge issue for our telescope. Um, anytime someone uh, comes within, you know, a mile of our telescope with a cell phone, <laughs> uh, we see that, yeah. right? Uh, and so that's, it's, it's, it's um, and, and, you know, there are TV stations from all over BC that we see, we, you know, we see uh, uh, reflections of airplanes, we see satellites, we see all kinds of different weird and wonderful uh, human communication <laughs> signals that have nothing to do with, uh, uh, with astronomy that, um, that make our telescope that look like flashes of light to us. And we, uh, we use machine learning to, to figure out, you know, which of those are coming from the, from, from space and which of those are coming from, from uh, someone that forgot to turn off their cell phone before they entered the observatory. Yeah, humans are noisy and it's becoming more of a problem <laughs> for, for, for astronomy. Uh, I saw a picture of Chime. Uh, obviously, I don't know anything about this gear sheet. It, it looked like sort of a, a solar solar uh, panel type structure. Um, nothing seems to move. Did I understand it? That that's right. So it's um, uh, I, I mentioned the mirrors before. So what makes our mirrors different than other um, than other radio telescopes? Where you know you've you've probably seen pictures of a radio telescope that have a dish, yeah. right? Which and uh, th those dishes are in the radio waves. They're basically mirrors, right? They reflect the radio light. Uh, uh, and um, and the chimes, the chime dishes, or the chime mirrors, uh, don't focus the light uh, in two dimensions the way that a normal dish does. It focuses the light just in one dimension. Dimension, so it it's it looks like a cylinder or like a half pipe actually. Yeah. Uh, so it's only only focuses the light east west, and that's because in the north south direction, uh, we focus the light digitally. Mm -hmm. Uh, like I described before, but it also, the big thing is it has no moving parts. So we always just look straight up and we're always just staring straight up and, um, and focusing the light uh, 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 north, south. Uh, but then we don't, um, but we don't, we don't get to choose what part of the sky we're observing. It's just whatever happens to be overhead at a given time. Yeah. Uh, but we've built it in such a way that, that we see a large swath of the sky in the north, south direction. And then because the earth spins, we actually survey the full sky every single day. Uh, and so that really, cut, uh, you know, if, if the thing you're going after is mapping speed, the ability to map out as much of the sky as possible, this is a great way to build a telescope. If you, if you have a, uh, you know, a particular source that you want to observe, this is a terrible way of uh, building <laughs> a telescope because you, if you want to observe that, tel that, that, that source, a specific, specific spot in the sky, you have to wait until the earth spins so that it's overhead. And that's, that's, uh, you know, that, that, and you don't get to, to look at that source very long. It only stays in our field of view for maybe, you know, 10 minutes. Um, but we, you know, for the, these, these large all sky surveys, you know, we don't care. We're not in the business of studying individual sources. We're in the business of, of, of mapping out the whole sky and, and, and seeing what the sky looks like sort of in a synoptic, you know, uh, uh, sense. Yeah. So it seems to be sort of ideally suited for somewhat rare phenomena too, right? Like FRBs. Yeah, that's right. And that's, and, and that's when, and that's why, you know, people, when this FRB fields, you know, started to take off, uh, uh, people, uh, you know, saw what this, this telescope that was being built for a completely different purpose, you know, what it could do and said, wow, that this is, this is actually the perfect instrument for the science. Uh, let's, let's, let's add some instrumentation to it so that it can, um, so I can search for FRBs and, and, and make it do something. Yeah, I don't know the history, Kiyoshi. I would imagine in 2007, when we first observed this, these flashes, there was some thinking, perhaps it was some uh, communication coming from extraterrestrials. Uh, but we have, we have uh, basically uh, eliminated that idea, right? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't say... Um, uh, I mean, I don't think uh, it's that. That's always been just sort of a fringe <laughs> yeah. idea, right? I mean, you know, you see, you you know, anytime you see, you know, there's there's lots of weird and wonderful things that happen in the universe, and uh, and, and any one of them you might speculate comes from ET, right? But there's no reason. 
you know, there's, there's no, you know, astrophysics is, is, uh, is interesting, you know, in, in itself is, is able to produce a, just a huge diversity of different, um, of, yeah. of, of, of different things. Right. Uh, so, I mean, it would be just very, you know, from day one, it was, we knew it was just very difficult to imagine this being a, uh, you know, uh, uh, an alien-like signal, right? Like, why are they making these big radio flashes? You know, how where'd they get the energy to to make something that could be seen halfway across the universe? Um, also, you know, as soon as you, you saw two or three of these things, you have to say, okay, why did an alien on one end of the universe make exactly the same signal as was made by an alien on the other end of the universe when they could <laughs> never have talked to each other, right? They are billions of light years away from each other that, you know, these two aliens have nothing to do with each other. Right? How could they possibly? Why would they make the exact same signal? Right? And so, you know, uh, immediately you say, okay, this just this is just not. This is nothing to do with. Uh, this is just 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 weird and wonderful astrophysics. <laughs> nothing, uh, nothing. Uh, Et. Yeah. Like so at all. the the energy since these are radio waves, um, the energy requirements I would imagine are substantially lower than let's say gamma ray or something like that. Right. That's that's true, right? Um, the energetics uh, uh, of FRBs is not, it, it's not, it's less energy than a gamma ray burst, less energy than a supernova, yeah. right? It's less energy than, than, than all the, all these things. What it is, uh, it does, what it is extreme in is how fast that energy comes out and how small of a region it's coming yeah. from, right? Uh, so it's, you know, you know, supernova come from, you know, these, these very big stars. And even, even though they produce the energy very fast, it takes a long time to get that energy out because, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of processes that have to happen, right? You, you have to heat a bunch of gas, you have to have nuclear decay. There's, there's many things that, that happen. So typically supernova, they, they, lots of energy comes out, but it takes weeks and weeks for, to get all that energy, you know, to, 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 to leave the star, right? And so the thing that made fast radio bursts really, really interesting was not the energy budget, but how do you get that energy mm -hmm. out in a millisecond um, without without doing serious damage to to, to, right, to right. the star itself? Yeah, we'll take a quick break, Yoshi. When we come back, we'll talk more about the mechanics of this as well as the magnetars. Great. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Kiyoshi, we were talking about FRB. Um, fast radio bursts, um, sort of flashes we observe from um, way out there, much uh, further out uh, from the Milky Way galaxy. And their flashes, they are very short duration flashes of radio waves. Um, the latest thinking is that they are created by um, very dense objects, perhaps like something like neutron star. Um, we talked a bit about CHIME, um, the instrument up in Canada that, uh, that is ideally suited to, uh, to find these things. Um, and there is a recent paper from the CHIME FRB collaboration entitled, A Bright Millisecond Duration Radio Burst from a Galactic Magnetar. Uh, magnetars uh, in this paper, you say, are highly magnetized young neutron stars. Uh, that occasionally produce enormous bursts of flares of X-rays and gamma rays. And uh, of the approximately 30 magnetars currently known in our galaxy, um, we have seen uh, a few exhibit the radio pulsations uh, we were talking about as well. So uh, before we get to the details of our own galaxy here, Kiyoshi, so the magnetars, could you put that in the context um, you say this is young neutron stars. So is there some sort of a size differential here? No, they're the same size as other yeah. neutron stars. Um, the thing that makes magnetars 
uh, its own class of neutron stars, or the, the you know the, how we classify them, is any neutron star where the majority of the energy that it's emitting uh, yeah. is, uh, it, you know, the, the reservoir of that energy is in the magnetic fields, mm. right? So uh, that's distinct from, say, a pulsar. A pulsar is a neutron star where the mo where the where its stored energy is like a flywheel energy. It's it's stored in the spin of the of the neutron star. Whereas here, uh, we, the energy is stored in the magnetic field. And any light that gives off, whether it be radio light or X-rays or anything, that light is is energy that's been converted from magnetic fields into um, in, 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 into radiation. Uh, so you know these uh, you know magnetars typically have you know magnet, magnetic fields that are you know many many orders of magnitude, you know millions and millions of times uh, 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 stronger. Then you can then we we can produce here on Earth. Yeah, uh, you know, magnetic fields are so strong that you know, they can tear apart atoms. Yeah, and so um, so what makes the magnetar? So uh, without knowing a lot about it, it, it would require sort of an arrangement uh, on the object, right? For for them to be magnetic. Um, well, actually, I think magnetic fields are kind of ubiquitous in astronomy. Right, so we, we see magnetic fields all over the galaxies. We see them in stars. You know, our Earth is has a magnetic field. Our Sun has a magnetic field. Right, all uh, you know, magnetic fields are just are just all over the place. And what I, I mean, mag magnetars, I think, are just a concentration of those normal magnetic fields. Right, so mm -hmm. you if you take you know all neutron stars come from uh, the death of a normal star. Yeah. Right. So you, what ha typically happens is that a, a, a star runs out of fuel. It collapses and gets very, very dense and, and gets compressed from being millions of kilometers across to being um, uh, to being just 10 kilometers across. <laughs> and uh, and in certain circumstances, when that collapse happens, what will happen, what, what you get is a concentration of the magnetic field. So you'll have. Uh, the you know the normal magnetic field that the star had uh, uh, just just naturally the way the way all stars have have magnetic fields, and then but then when it collapses it carries that magnetic field in and concentrates it into this very you know you concentrate the mass but you also concentrate the magnetic energy, and uh, and that that causes you know that concentration really uh, really increases the, the the magnetic field strength because you have you know sort of the same amount of magnetic energy. Being compressed into a much smaller, much smaller volume. Yeah, I, I was wondering. Uh, so, at the core of the magnetar, would there be anything different uh, compared to a sort of a non-magnetized neutron star, or it's um, not required? I the core of I don't know, um, uh, and I don't know that we uh, that we have. You know, a really good handle on the the, the complete uh, mechanics of um, of magnetars. Yeah. Um, they do exhibit uh, a lot of of phenomena that are unique to magnetars, right? So one thing that was uh, the way magnetars were first identified as their own class of sources was that um, they produce uh, what look like gamma ray bursts. So normally gamma ray bursts are, are, you know, come from other galaxies and are very, very bright. But, but, you know, at some, you know, in the nineties, there were a certain type of gamma ray burst that was observed that didn't look like other gamma ray bursts. Yeah. Uh, it, that the, the, um, the, the, the gamma rays that came off weren't as high, quite as high energy as, as typical gamma ray bursts. And these were identified from as coming from, magnetars and actually what's what they're coming from is star as seismic activity you know, star quakes on these magnetars mm -hmm. um uh what happens is anytime you have seismic activity on uh you know all neutron stars can have seismic activity but anytime you have seismic activity on a magnetar uh that breaks or it reconfigures the magnetic fields uh and since there's so much energy stored in that those magnetic fields that reconfiguration uh is a very violent messy process uh, and um, uh, and and causes a huge uh, burst of uh, of 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 X rays and, and gamma rays uh, that that are associated with their, its own special type of gamma ray burst. Yeah. So so the uh, so the, what do we know of the sort of the mechanics of the creation of FRBs? Um, is it sort of a similar process? 
No, we, we have no idea. Uh, there are, there are dozens of models, uh, out there, uh, that, that kind of, that, that, that try to explain this phenomenon. So, so magnetars have long been, you know, so we, we, we said that most people think FRBs come from, uh, from neutron stars. And then, uh, uh most of the people that think that they come from neutron stars think that the neutron stars are coming from our magnetars, mm -hmm. uh, just because that they, they, they exhibit such a wide and and, and colorful uh, array of phenomena, but exactly how that works, we, uh, you know, there are, there are many competing theories. There's uh, things that have to do with the reconfiguration of magnetic fields, things that have to do with uh, seismic activity, the same way that the gamma rays are burst. There are other uh, other um, uh, 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 models that think uh, that that you know, postulate that this is actually coming from gas around the magnetars, you know, the magnetar itself doesn't yeah. make a radio flare, but maybe it makes an X-ray or, or a gamma ray flare. And that hits gas that's around it uh, and sort of uh, creates a shock wave that, it, that then creates a radio, uh, yeah. a radio flash. Uh, but, you know, these things, you know, we, we, there, there's a large diversity of these models, right? And these explanations and, 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 some evidence for and against each of them but i i think you know it's we just we just it, it, this feel is still too young we just don't have yeah. enough observations to really to, to 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 be positive of which one of these is right is correct yeah that makes it exciting kiyoshi job security too yeah indeed yeah. <laughs> well i mean uh, and then the the, yeah. the thing that's really cemented you know we i mean we still don't have a really good idea of what of what the the um uh, of how magnetars are causing these fast radio bursts but we do now know that magnetars are causing fast radio bursts and that's what this paper that we that that we're that we're talking about is a, is about right so yeah. so magnetars have always made radio pulses but nothing like a fast radio burst remember i say, said that these fast radio bursts we see them in other galaxies they're yeah. crazy crazy bright all right they're, we see them really far away and magnetars, a normal radio pulse from a magnetar, you would never see that in another galaxy. It's just impossible. It's just, they're just too far away. Hmm. But we saw this, but we saw this burst uh, coming from a galactic magnetar, a nearby uh, galactic magnetar that was that was bright enough that if we'd seen it in another galaxy, it would have been a fast radio burst. We could have seen it from from a galaxy that was you know uh, uh, you know ten million, twenty million light years away. Uh, and that's the first time we'd, we'd, we'd seen anything like that. So this was, you know, this was really bright for us. We, it, our chime wasn't even looking in that direction at the, at that, that time, but we still saw it just because it kind of came in through our peripheral vision. Um, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, we only saw it to be, a, a, maybe a thousandth as bright as we would have seen it had it been, had we been staring right at it. Uh, one other telescope also saw this um, this burst, uh, and that um, but that uh, telescope uh, was was very very you know it was a very small telescope. It was actually made up of just a couple case fans, yeah. Uh, and um, and, and was still able to see this. That's just how bright this thing was, uh, and that's because it was this it was as energetic as a fast radio burst, but coming from our neighborhood, not coming from another galaxy. Yeah, so so you mean uh, by by galactic magnetar, you mean a magnetar within uh, within the Milky Way galaxy. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, and anytime an astronomer says uh, uh, galactic with a capital G, yeah, that always means our galaxy. Oh, okay. Um, uh, uh, a little bit of subtlety of astronomer uh, grammar there. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, yeah, and actually, all magnetars, all known uh, magnetars, are either in uh, in our uh, galaxy or the Magellanic clouds, you know, nearby, very nearby yeah. galaxies. There aren't any, you know, in other and far away galaxies, we just, you know, we just don't have the ability to see, uh, for the most part, individual stars, but especially not things like magnetars, which are, which tend to be harder to find. Yeah, so, so going back to the mechanics, I know that we are still sort of exploring it. When we observe an FRB, do we, do we also observe sort of accompanying X-ray and uh, gamma ray flares? Uh, there has never been an observation of an extragalactic uh, FRB with any other type of flare. Hmm. Um, 
now this particular burst, this uh, this galactic magnetar, uh, there happened to be uh, X-ray telescopes uh, looking at the magnetar at the same time, and indeed there were were X-ray flares at the same time. So there were these little X-ray bursts that happened at the same time as this very very bright radio burst. But yeah. those X-ray bursts, we never would have, if it had to have happened in another galaxy, we never would have seen it. Right. Whereas the radio emission, if it had happened in an, another galaxy, we would have seen it. So that's that's distinct. So there does seem to be accompanying emission at other wavelengths, other parts yeah. of the M spectrum, but nothing, no, uh, nothing that we would be able to see for this source, at least in other galaxies. And that's that's reinforced by the fact that we've you know, we've never seen simultaneous uh, radio and X-ray or optical or any type of emission um, uh, from an extragalactic fast radio burst. Yeah, so so I wondered um, since since uh, the the galactic uh, magnetar that we talked about had small X-ray and gamma ray flares, I wondered uh, the the FRB is created in some sort of a energy spectrum uh, where you don't have you know huge amounts of energy released, but sort of moderate amounts of energy released. Uh, we won't be able to see the the small flares of X rays and gamma rays uh, when we look out there, uh, but ultimately we just see the FRBs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think I think that's that's uh, uh, I think a lot of astronomers and astrophysicists have a very similar picture, and and that's why there's actually many campaigns to 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 try to characterize this multi wavelength view of these of these uh, of of you know all FRBs and and ones from from magnetars, and that just takes you know a lot of coordination. You need to you know be looking at the same direction at uh, at the at the same time with lots of different types of telescopes, uh, yeah. and you also you know uh, and and hopefully we'll see something like that. It, you know, it also requires some luck, right? That you have to um uh you know, you have to get the right burst when you happen to be looking, right? Uh, and that's <laughs> uh, that 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 that's always that's always hard. Um, yeah, yeah it's, so, so, so we're looking for just that. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it, exactly like a flash of a camera, right? You have to be looking <laughs> and it happens. In, in most cases, it doesn't repeat and that makes it frustrating. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, um, so this magnetar within Milky Way that we talked about, um, so, so what is sort of the, the, the frequency? Uh, do we know how many sort of magnetars might exist in the Milky Way galaxy as an example? Um, yeah, there's something, I mean, uh, how many exist? I mean, we know of something like 30 of them mm. um, that have been identified, uh, but that's, you know, a tiny fraction of the total number of magnetars in the, in, in the Milky Way. Um, yeah. uh, I don't know off the top of my head how many it is. Uh, it's certainly um, many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, uh, probably not millions uh, yeah. uh, in the Milky Way. And we've, we just know about the ones that are in our neighborhood, right? Um, uh, actually, we do know of one that's a little bit further away towards the galactic center, but we don't, you know, we're, we're highly biased to see the ones that are nearby. Um, right. Uh, yeah. We don't, it's, it's hard, the ones that are far away in the galaxy are just harder to see. So they're reasonably frequent, hundreds of thousands. We know that a magnetar could produce FRB. We, we have observed that. But could we say that um, uh, not, so all magnetars um, doesn't necessarily have to produce FRBs, right? This is sort of a special thing. Yeah, but actually we, you know, these, these broad statements are a little bit hard to make because the, yeah. we, we, we don't have a really good handle on the population of magnetars, I don't think. Uh, and we also certainly don't have a, a, a perfectly good uh, handle on the population of FRBs and how, how frequent they are really over the whole sky in the yeah. universe. Um, but uh, I think the, the, the estimates that we have, which are rough, admittedly rough, but I think good enough to make statements like this, is that it's actually hard, you know, F pretty common. Um, there's there's a lot of them over the full sky, um, and the thing that prevents us from seeing, you know, hundreds or thousands a day is just the fact that we can't we can't look at the whole sky uh, at once. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually hard. We 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 don't actually think that there are enough magnetars in the universe to make, uh, you know, if, even if all of them behave the same way as this magnetar we saw in 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 the Milky Way it would still be really hard for us to make all the FRBs that we see in the universe. So there must be, there must be some exotic type of magnetar or some, 
some phase that magnetars go into where they ca cause these bursts that we don't see a whole that we're not seeing you know i, I the, the ones we see you know the, the behavior we've seen in the milky way isn't enough to explain all the frbs that we observe uh, uh over mm. the sky so so we you need to add a little bit something else and, and we, i think with a sample of one uh, known and well-studied source. It's just a hard, hard to, 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 to figure out what, what you need to do to make, to get all the FRBs we see. Yeah, I know that it is uh, speculation, but um, do you think, uh, what's your instinct? Do you think some sort of companion is needed for this to happen? Um, yeah, there's a companion needed for it to happen. Uh, I would. I don't think it's needed for it to happen. There's evidence in some of the uh, observations that there is a companion of many FRB sources. For instance, mm -hmm. we've seen one repeating source uh, that yeah. um, that uh, has a periodicity in its activity, right? So you see, typically see bursts from it coming. Uh, you know, if you see one burst from it, you're likely to see a few more bursts and, and, uh, and you know, uh, in the days surrounding that in maybe a four day window. And then it goes silent for something like 12 days and then turns back on for another four days. So it has a 16 day mm -hmm. period where it's on for a couple of days, off for 12 and on for a couple more days. And, and, and that periodicity to its activity, you know, we think requires some sort of companion, right? It maybe yeah. has something, maybe that periodicity has something to do with an orbit or procession, which uh, which which usually requires a, a companion, or or maybe uh, or at the very least maybe some material that's orbiting it. Um, it doesn't have to be a star; it could be uh, could be just gas or, or or something. We we don't really know, but there there's evidence, circumstantial evidence like that that points to companions and and some of the repeating sources. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I think it's just too 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 early to tell. Yeah, it could also be, uh, for instance, if there is a black hole in the neighborhood and the source is um, rotating around the black hole, then you have periods of uh, no information and then periods of information, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, if you want to throw throw something else into the mix for, I mean, it would be great if these if this had to do with black holes because uh, everyone. Um, you know, black holes are such interesting objects in themselves. To, so to, to pair a neutron star uh, uh, and a black hole in a close orbit, uh, that'd be, yeah. that, that'd be, that'd be a re really interesting system. Um, but, you know, if you have, if you throw compact objects like black holes or neutron stars in the mix, then gravitational lensing also comes into play. Uh, and yeah. that, that in itself is also uh, super interesting. So I, I think there's just a very large diversity of scenarios that, that, that could solve that, that could explain these mysteries. And they, I don't think they've all been explored either theoretically or, or certainly not what being well-constrained observationally yet. Yeah, it seems like a, a very exciting developing area. I know that you are intimately involved with CHIME FRB collaboration. So in conclusion, Kiyoshi, if you look forward five years, uh, where do you think we would most likely make um, you know, further discoveries and possibly get closer to explaining this in more concrete terms. Yeah, so there's two two things that uh, I'm personally super excited for. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we know so far has been coming from individual discoveries, right? We discovered this one source that had periodic activity. We discovered, you know, uh, a few, a handful of these repeaters uh, we had a fast radio burst coming from this this galactic magnetar. These are all individual sources that are that we were learning about uh, just by yeah. making case studies of them. But what we're not getting a good handle, or what we haven't done a good job of of analyzing, is the population as a whole. Right? You know, yeah. what kind of, you know, how are they distributed through the universe? What are the energetics of these uh, from a population point of view? How, you know, how you know, what, what are the environments of these, of, of the sources? And, um, and, and Chime, you know, it discovers a lot of fast radio bursts, you know, it, it's really is a, a, a sort of a, a, a transition from, you know, going from dozens of fast radio bursts a year to hundreds of fast radio bursts a year being discovered. And, uh, yeah. and we can start asking population uh, questions now. And so that, that's one of the things I'm working really hard on. Uh, no, this is always population studies are always really, really hard because you have uh, these selection biases that you have to figure out. Uh, and so we're thinking mm -hmm. very, very hard about, you know, 
I can, of course, study the, the statistics, of the fast rate of bursts I did detect, but there's always, for every fast rate of bursts I did detect, there are many that I didn't detect. And I have to, I have to compensate for those biases. Um, right, yeah. and, and, and so these population studies are really going to give us a much more, a much broader sense for what, you know, what, for what these, these FRBs are, you know, what kind, you know, instead of just saying for this specimen and that specimen, what's happening, what, what's happening for the population as a whole. So, right. and that, and that's coming up very soon, right? That'll be the next, uh, a year or so we'll have a much better handle, uh, on, on, on what the population is doing as a whole. The, the other thing, uh, that that's really exciting on a, you know, a three to five year time scale is, um, is what's called, what are called localization. So I said that, you know, these fast ray bursts are coming from, uh, 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 far away galaxies. And actually, typically, yeah. we don't know which galaxy a given fast radio burst is coming from. And that's because Chime mm. is really good at finding fast radio bursts. It's not so good at figuring out exactly what direction it's coming from. You know, when we mm. see a fast radio burst, there's normally an area on the sky about the size of the moon that we don't, yeah. that we can't, that, that, that could be coming from. And in that area, on a typical spot of the sky, there's might be dozens or hundreds of galaxies. Mm. And when there's, um, and, and that 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 really limits, you know, we can't ask questions about like what kind of galaxies do fast radio bursts come from, you know, uh, how far away are they, uh, and, and and you know, and that 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 uh, limits our information about the energetics, how energetic they are, and so we'd really like to have a better idea, you know, for every fast radio burst, we'd like to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from, and we're actually building new telescopes right now that are going to help us with that. What we um, what we're going to do is we're going to build tiny co copies of Chime. They're about one eighth the size, and we're going to put them, uh, put uh, them in three different sites across North America, and they will uh, be looking at the same place of, of sky as Chime, and we'll use those to triangulate using a technique called very long baseline interferometry. We'll triangulate exactly where every burst is coming from. Uh, so yeah. the, the and VLBI very long baseline interferometry is is a technique that is one of the most precise techniques in astronomy for figuring out exactly where a source comes from. It, it, it's the same, same uh, technique that was used to image a black hole and that, that spectacular image that came out a couple of years back. Yeah. And so we're, yeah. we're hoping to, to use that technique to really nail down, you know, for every one of these bursts, where, where is it coming from and, and what galaxy and, and what does its environment look like? Uh, and, and that should tell us a lot more about the, the population as a whole. Yeah, so the localization, uh, I would imagine it's important for us to also fully characterize if they're repeating, right? Uh, especially if, the, if they're repeating in cycles of, you know, long duration cycles, localization is going to be important to, to really understand that. Um, well, I think repeaters, we can pinpoint them well enough to know that if, if we see two yeah. bursts from the same place in the sky, we're pretty sure it's you know, it's not a coincidence. It's just a, it, it really is two separate bursts for the, you know, for, you know, uh, nine times out of 10, we're pretty confident when we see mm -hmm. a repeater that really is the same source twice, uh, as opposed to just uh, uh, two, two sources that are coincidentally very close to each other. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I mean, localization, what we'll do is it'll, it, it, it will tell us not just that it's the same source twice, but where is that source in its host galaxy, right? Where mm. is it in a, you know, is it in a nebula? Is it, uh, is it near the galactic center? Is there, is there anything special about that area in, in, in the galaxy? And that, that, that's going to be just really illuminating. This, uh, this one more quick question, uh, Kyoshi, this magnetar that we found in Milky Way, is it in any, any special position? Uh, I don't think as far as magnetars go, um, yeah, it's uh, I don't know of anything. Uh, it's a very active magnetar. It, it tends to be very temperamental in the x-rays. It you know goes through these periods where it's just shooting off flares all the time. Um, yeah. But I don't think of I don't know of anything that's super special about its environment. Uh, it doesn't seem to be in a special place. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. This has been great, Kiyoshi. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a great thing. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, 
please reach out to info@scientificsense.com. at